And you know, we talk sometimes about like our life in the church and how great it is that God has saved us and redeemed us and called us out of the world and made us his children. And then we, 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 we will, for sake of comparison, we'll talk about the world out there. The wor- I heard a message about this recently. We'll talk about, you know, we're here and there's the world out there. And it's like, that's right. The Bible does say that you should not love the world or the things of the world. If you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. So it's biblical to make that line of demarcation, perhaps. But let us also not forget that we don't wrestle with flesh and blood. People are not our enemies. And even if you perceive someone to be your enemy, your command is to love them and to pray for them like Jesus did, right? And remember that God's love is for the world. I was thinking about this just this morning, that God loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever, right? So it starts with a general, the whole world. God loved the world. And he gave, the world, that's everybody in the world. But then the latter part of it, that whosoever will believe, that's where the, the distinction and the qualification comes. There is God's general love for the world that he gave Jesus, but the, the, the received benefit of that love is only experienced when one comes to faith. And we've got that key because we have the gospel. And that's a big part of our mission, isn't it? Freely you have received, freely give. Right? Let's look at Matthew chapter 16. Again, I should say, because we've been in this little passage for a few weeks, and here we go again. Matthew chapter 16. I'd like to just start right in the middle of it because I've reviewed the beginning of it and the conversation they have. And we made much last week about the gates of Hades and how there is no power of death over God's church. The gates of Hades will not prevail against his church. And then he continues in verse 19 to speak to Peter. Let us pray for a moment and then I'll read from verse 19. Dear Lord God, Thank you so much that you have opened your kingdom. And it is your kingdom, as is all the power of it and all the glory associated with it. It's all yours. Thank you that you have opened it to sinners who come to you empty-handed, but believing on you, trusting in you. How we pray, Lord God, that as we read and study your word today, that you would open our eyes to encouraging things. Teach us more and more your ways here today. I thank you, Lord, for every person who is gathered here today. And I pray that your word, your word, would be a blessing, Lord, to each one. In Jesus' name, Lord, I pray. Amen. Verse 19 of Matthew chapter 16 goes like this. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven... And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus, the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. But Peter 
took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. We're continuing as we go through this passage to learn some lessons from this interchange between Jesus and Peter and the rest of his disciples. And I won't, like I said, review the beginning of it just for time's sake because we've been over it quite a bit already. So kind of jumping right into the middle, which for me is very hard to do, but, but it's probably hard for you to listen to me review the same things over and over, so I won't. We'll just jump right in. And in verse 19, Jesus, continuing on his reaction to Peter's confession, that his recognition that Jesus was the Messiah, the Christ, and telling him that, you know, God revealed that to you. And then all these wonderful things that he says, he comes to this. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And I think the most important way to understand what is being said there is to contextualize it fully. The speaker is the Lord Jesus Christ who is the head of the church. And in context, what he is speaking of is the founding of his church and the formation of his church and how he was going to use the apostles to be the foundation of the church, which he had said in the previous sentence and we saw in the book of Ephesians that the apostle Paul confirmed that, that Christ was the chief cornerstone and the church was built on the foundation of the apostles. So in saying, I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven... That's what sets off then what comes after it. So when we talk about the keys to the kingdom, what are we talking about when we talk about the kingdom? We're talking about the kingdom of heaven, a kingdom that is not of this world, a kingdom where Jesus himself is the king. Keys, as I mentioned already this morning, do what? Keys open things. They also shut them and lock them. But primarily, we think of a key as being the thing that is needed to unlock something. And that is, that is certainly primarily what Jesus is saying to Peter here. My kingdom, I'm going to hand over to you the keys to it. Right? And there's a lot of power with keys in your hand, isn't there? Right? Hey, I have a daughter who just got her driver's license. I know the power that there is when you hand a key over to somebody. I don't know when the last time I had my key to my Dodge Caravan on my keychain. I don't even know where it is. She probably has it in her pocket. So, in any case, do you? No, I don't know. So, but, the, but that's powerful, right? And listen, that's a kind of an amusing way maybe to look at it. But Jesus said, here, I'm going to hand you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. You are going to be able to open up the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And when you open up the keys of the kingdom of heaven, people are going to be able to come in. That's the key to it, right? Because that's what we want. We're not so concerned about people leaving the kingdom of heaven. Because once you get into where Jesus is, I doubt you want to leave. I think what Jesus is mostly talking about here is, I'm going, he already talked about I'm going to use you to be the foundation of the church. 
Now I'm going to use you to open up my kingdom. And of course, what is that key? There's only one thing, faith. Faith is the entryway into the kingdom of heaven. And where does faith come from? How is faith stirred up? How does God create faith in someone? You know what I'm going to say, right? From Romans 10, famous saying, finish it for me. Faith comes by hearing and very good. That's a very important statement in Romans 10. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That's the key. That's the key to the kingdom. God's word, the gospel, is the key to the kingdom. And the kingdom is open to people when the gospel of Jesus is preached to them. He goes on to say this, and whatever you bind on earth, listen to this, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, I think there's a couple things that need to be said about that statement because that's probably the part of it that's a little more difficult. What does it mean to bind something on earth and have it be bound in heaven and to loose something on earth and have it be loosed in heaven? I don't know that the understanding of this comes from the specific details or processes of binding and loosing and whatever that means. I think the, key, the critical point to understand here is that what Peter and the apostles were given the authority to do had the blessing behind it of what? Heaven. So he has the keys to the kingdom of heaven and he is handed all of the backing and the authority and the blessing of heaven. What you bind there, bound here too. What you loose there, loosed here too. So the apostles, Peter and company, who is standing there with him during all of this, are given a certain special authority. Now, I don't think that these words are written just so we simply have historic narrative in front of us. It does add something very significant to the narrative. It is very good for us to be aware of the fact that in this moment, Jesus described the apostles as himself and the apostles as foundational to the church and then described the apostles as having keys to the kingdom of heaven and having authority. It's good that we know that, but it has some application to our own lives as well. Hold that point here because I'm going to come back to it. But first, I want to explain this and have you look at a passage of Scripture or two with me uh, to explain the significance of Jesus saying this to the apostles. There is something special about the ministry of the apostles. There is something special about that age right after Jesus ascended back to heaven and the apostles lived and did their work. Of course there is. It was the foundation of the church. It was the foundation of Christianity. It was also the production of what? The book you hold in your hand. I mean, the Lord used these people to bring the Bible to us. So there was something very special about this apostolic authority. So in a historical sense, just so we understand how this fits into the entire biblical narrative, I would like for you to understand this whole concept of whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. It is a description of apostolic authority with the backing of heaven behind it. And you see some examples of it. Um, Turn first, 
just so you can see the special importance of the ministry of the apostles to Acts chapter 1 and verse 21. We won't linger there long, but I want you to see this and understand this. One of the reasons why, while you're turning there, that I think it's important to understand this is because it's become somewhat popular in the modern church age for people who are leaders in church to take for themselves the title of apostle. And while I think in one sense apostle is just a word and, you know, a word is a word, who cares? Um, On the other sense, I think it's very important, though, that you specifically understand that I don't think it's probably wise for someone to take the title apostle. And here's part of the reason why. In, in, in Acts chapter 1 and in verse 21, we're in the middle. It's, it's that little part of the early part of the book of Acts that usually just kind of gets skipped over. You open the book of Acts and you read about Jesus ascending back to heaven. And then you assume the next thing that happens is the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost and the church is born. But there's this one anecdote in the middle, right? And what are they doing here? They're aware of the fact that Judas Iscariot has been lost from their number, and they realize from the Bible that it's been prophesied that he would be replaced. In a couple of quotations from the Psalms in verse 20, especially the last one says, let another take his office, right? And so we have Peter, the very same Peter who we're talking about in Matthew 16, coincidentally, uh, saying, therefore... Of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. And then they go through the process of selecting two and casting lots that God may have the final word, which of the two that it was. But the important thing that you need to see in that is that they recognized probably the seriousness of what Jesus had said to Peter back when they were having this conversation that we're reading in Matthew chapter 16. I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, fast forward some time and they need to replace one of their band of 12. We're not just going to hand those keys to anybody. You understand? So what is the qualification that they put forward in all of their wisdom as God is guiding them? Of these men who have accompanied us, accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us. In other words, we weren't, they weren't just going to pick a stranger. They weren't going to pick even someone that came in when he makes the time reference beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us. That goes all the way back to the ministry days of John the Baptist when Jesus himself appeared on the scene and was baptized by John the Baptist all the way to the time of his crucifixion, his resurrection, and then some days passed and he ascends back to heaven. It had to be someone who was part of their group all the way for the entire course of that time. Why? Because the apostles had a special mission. Their mission was to go and be, as it's described here, witnesses with us of the resurrection. They didn't have biblical accounts, the New Testament written down yet. That was going to be part of their call. 
but this needed to be someone who saw and heard Jesus. Someone who saw him, someone who listened to him, someone who knew he was crucified, someone who knew that he had risen from the dead, someone who had seen him alive after his crucifixion. And they had two guys there, and they picked two, and then the lot fell to Matthias, and he became the 12th apostle, the one who took, the one who took Judas Iscariot's place. I point this passage of Scripture out because I want you to understand that the apostolic ministry that Jesus describes in Matthew 16 was special. Let's see it in action, shall we? Still in the book of Acts, turn to chapter 5. Chapter 5 and verse 1. Acts 5, 1. It says, certain, a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, I'm sure you're familiar with the story. I made reference to it in passing a week or two ago. Sold the possession, kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, while all the details are not given to us, what we're told is that was a lie. Because what you can deduce the best, I think, from the passage of Scripture, especially as you read towards the end of chapter 4, is that lots of people were selling their land and bringing the totality of the proceeds and laying it at the apostles' feet. There was not any requirement stated that anybody do that. It doesn't appear that there's anything wrong with selling something and bringing part of the proceeds and giving it to the apostles and hanging on to part of it for whatever reason. But the point was they wanted to look like they were doing what everybody else was doing. And so without presumably even opening up their mouths, by their actions, they were lying. They kept back part of the proceeds. His wife, also being aware of it, brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter knew that and spoke up and said, Ananias, how did Peter know that? Well, he's an apostle. Clearly, there was something special about the way the Lord worked through him, and he just knew it. Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of land for yourself? Look at this. While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your control? See, he was free to do whatever he wanted with it, but he he lied about it. He lied in the presence of this holy church. Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You haven't lied to men, but to God. Then Ananias, now listen. Ananias, hearing those words, fell down and breathed his last. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. There's that special apostolic call that was at work. It doesn't stop there. We were told that his wife was aware it was going on. So in verse 7, it says, It was about three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter answered her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. She admitted it. Yes, for so much. Peter said, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are out the door and they'll carry you out. And then immediately she died. Apostolic authority. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. It doesn't end there. In verse 12, we're told what? Through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people. I want you to especially note the prepositional phrase, of the apostles. Not through everyone, 
Through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people. There was something very special about the ministry of the apostles. They were all together in one accord in Solomon's porch, yet none of the rest dared join them, but the people esteemed them highly, and believers were increasingly added to the Lord. So the idea is, through this amazing act of binding on earth, loosing on earth, this amazing exercise of the apostles' authority, what was happening was what? God was purifying and growing his own church the proper way. That's something I think that is clearly very special to the ministry of the apostles in those first years. There's more passages I could look up. I won't take the time now. In chapter 15, there is that council that they had. Remember the issue of works, uh, the issue of religious works, circumcision. Do the Gentiles need to be circumcised in order to be saved? There were some Jews who said yes. Paul and Barnabas said no. So they went to Jerusalem and they had a council among the apostles, right? And that council came to the decision and wrote the decree and that letter was spread throughout the churches of the Gentiles. Binding on earth, loosing on earth. A special ministry given to the apostles. Uh, Chapter 19 and verse 11 says that when Paul was in Ephesus, unusual miracles were done through him. It's almost a redundancy, isn't it? I mean, miracles are by definition miraculous, right? And so to say unusual miracles, it it implies that even from what was known to be an apostolic... And Paul was different from the other apostles, wasn't he? In his own writing, he pointed that out. He said, I'm one who was like born after the time or whatever the exact words he used were. I was born out of time or out of season. In other words, Paul was aware of the fact that all of the other apostles were ones who walked with Jesus during his days, but Paul was one who was specifically called by the resurrected, ascended, and glorified Jesus personally himself when he was on the road to Damascus. And Paul made note of that distinction a few times. But God was doing unusual miracles through Paul's hand. It says they would take handkerchiefs to Paul and lay them on him and then take the handkerchiefs to sick people and lay them on the sick people and they would become healed. Listen, there's a special authority given to the apostles. Now, go back to Matthew. Now look, so I read all this and I can see clearly that what Jesus is doing, because Peter recognized who he was and God himself had revealed, the Father had revealed to Peter who he was. You're the rock. On this rock, I'm going to build my church. So Peter and the apostles were foundational to the church. I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. Clearly a historical description for us of the significance and the specialness of the ministry of the apostles in the first century. But I want to know what is the relevance for us? Is there any? And I think there is. It's more than just a historic narrative. Like, if you want to parallel it in the book of Matthew, like in Matthew chapter 4. What happens in Matthew chapter 4? Well, there's the significant passage that adds a lot to the narrative. It describes Jesus being tempted in the wilderness, right? And what's the main point of that? It's to show us that Jesus never succumbed to temptation of the devil. Turn these stones into bread. Throw yourself off the pinnacle of the temple. You know the story, right? In Acts chapter 4. And uh, uh, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world if you'll just bow down and worship me. 
Satan tries to tempt him, tempt him, tempt him, and Jesus never succumbs. And what that adds to both the theological thread of the Bible and the historic narrative of the Bible is that Jesus was tempted just like we are, as it says later in the New Testament, but he was without sin. He never sinned. But there's application for us in that story too, isn't there? Right? Because every time Jesus was tempted, what did he say? It is written. Man shall not live on bread alone, but every word who receives the mouth of God. It is written, you shall not tempt the Lord your God, etc., right? And so we learn, even though it's the historic narrative and the theological theme that's being pushed along, we also learned in that passage something practical for ourselves. It's really important to know your Bible so that when the tempter comes, you can recall the word of God and have strength with which to stand. This, I use that just as an example of how the, 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 the narrative of the Bible can be carried along but still have specific meaning for us. This passage in Matthew chapter 16 is talking about how the apostles were given special authority. So what does that mean for us? Do we have authority to bind on earth and it'll be bound in heaven? Do we have authority to loose on earth and be loosed in heaven? Do we have the keys to the kingdom of heaven? Does that somehow extend to us? Is there some application to us? Well, no and yes. I don't believe that the Lord has just given the power or the authority to every Christian to just say, you lied, you're dying today. Right? None of, let's face it, none of us would probably be alive <laughs> having this meeting if we were all walking around and telling people you're dead, right? But we certainly do have the gospel, right? And so in that sense, we carry on, maybe without the specialness of the apostolic ministry, but with every, with every bit as much authority as they, we go into the world and we tell them there is a God. And if you look around, you can see the evidence of his creation. And mankind is without excuse because even his invisible attributes, his eternal power and Godhead are visible in the creation to anyone who looks. The heavens declare his glory. The firmament shows his handiwork. There is a God and he made you and he gave you his life. And that God, he gave you your life. And that God has revealed himself he revealed himself in what theologians call general revelation through the creation, but he revealed himself also through special revelation, which is the Bible, okay? And, and you can read in the Bible, and as you learn in the Bible, you learn that man from the beginning has rebelled against God, and that's why there's all this trouble in the world, and you're part of it, and you're caught up in it, and there's judgment coming. And you have no chance to stand before God's judgment if your life is judged based on your works. You have sinned. You have lied. You have stolen. You have committed adultery. You have coveted other people's goods. You have used the Lord's name in vain, etc., etc., etc. You have sinned against God. And if you are judged by your works, you have no chance. But God loved you so much. Here comes the key. Or if I had my keys in my pocket, I could pull them out and shake them right now. I should have left them in my office. Here comes the key, right? Here's the key. Listen, God's love for the world is that even though we've all sinned against him, he sent his son 
And Jesus came. Jesus, the holy, spotless, perfectly righteous Son of God, came, lived his life, and at the end of his life, offered it as a sacrifice when he died on the cross. When Jesus died on the cross, he took all of God's just wrath and punishment against your sin when he died on the cross. He took your sin. He took your punishment when he died. They took his body off of the cross. They buried his body in the grave. And on the third day, he rose from the dead. He is alive forevermore. And if you trust in him, if you believe in him, you have the hope and the promise of everlasting life. That's the key to heaven. That's the key to the kingdom of heaven, is it not? And you and I have that. If you're in Christ, if you're not in Christ, what are you waiting for? If you're not in Christ, what, listen, you know what motivated it all? Love. Can you relate to that? You want to know someone loves you? Bible says that God demonstrated his own love for us. He demonstrated his own love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Someone loves you that much. What are you waiting for? Come to Jesus if you have not. And if you're in Christ, every bit as much as the apostles, dare I say, even more than the apostles because we have this, their work, at least this part of it. And the whole thing is God's word, but the apostles didn't write the Old Testament. They wrote the New, right? And so we have these accounts of Jesus and who he is and what he did, and we can share them with the world. We can invite people to come and sit and listen and hear these words of life. Hear these words of the gospel. The keys to the kingdom of heaven. Wow. All right. Now, looking at Matthew chapter 16, verse 20. Then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. Why? Why? When he just said, I've given you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, then he said, don't you tell anyone. You're aware of who I am. Don't you tell anyone. Why would he do that? Doesn't that seem counterintuitive? Doesn't that seem like the opposite of what the mission is? Well, not really, because Christ had not yet fulfilled the Messiah's suffering part of his mission. And Jesus knew the hearts of the people. Jesus knew the fervor that existed among the Jews in his day, a fervor that still exists to this day because he was not generally received as Messiah among his own people. And that fervor was when Messiah comes, he's going to establish his kingdom And he's going to kick the Romans out. And if these people start to perceive through all of the miracles and everything else, and then if it is confirmed through one of his close apostles, his close disciples, that he has actually said, yes, I am the Messiah. And God has revealed to you that I am the Messiah. 
guess what happens? As almost happened a few times in his ministry, they would come and make him their king by force. Right? And Jesus didn't want that. For all of the words of the prophets, and on Thursday nights we've studied through almost all. We've got one left. We finished Zechariah last Thursday. We start Malachi this Thursday. Four chapters, and we will have studied all of the minor prophets together, which is a wonderful thing. (coughs) But all of the words of those prophets pointed to Messiah who was going to come. But Jesus, who is the Messiah, knew those prophecies of his coming to establish his kingdom are not yet. Not yet. First, there is the time of the Gentiles. And in the fullness of the time of the Gentiles, he will come again and he will establish his kingdom. But first, he needed to die and he needed to rise. And the gospel needed to be preached to the entire world. As the promise originally said to Abraham, in your seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Right? And that needed to be fulfilled So don't tell them that. Don't tell them that. And then in verse 21, it makes sense. From that time, in other words, now that Jesus realizes, not that Jesus was ever lacking the realization of everything, but in the narrative of the story, it reads like that. From that time, from that moment where Peter expresses on behalf of the others that they're aware of who he is, he tells them, don't tell them who I am, but he begins to tell them this. He must go to Jerusalem. That part of it they probably figured. But this part. And suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. The very same Peter who just said you're the Christ, the Son of God. The one who Jesus said you're blessed because flesh and blood didn't reveal it to you. But my father did. You're Peter, and on this rock I'm going to build my church. Death will have no power over it. And I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind here will be bound there. Whatever you loose here will be loosed loosed there. The very same Peter to that Peter, that Peter says to him, takes him aside and begins to rebuke him. Why? May I suggest to you that Peter meant well? Because the reason that Peter took him aside to rebuke him was because there was a loyalty to him. Lord, you're the Messiah. This isn't going to happen to you. You know, to this day, if you express to an Orthodox Jewish person that Messiah needed to die, that is the probably the biggest bone of contention over the identity of Messiah. If you try to point an Orthodox Jewish person to Isaiah chapter 53, which describes his suffering, they will say that that is not a description of the Messiah, that is a description of the entire nation of Israel suffering. Did you know that? And there are other similar passages of Scripture. And that was without a doubt the understanding back then. Messiah is going to come and he's going to establish the kingdom. God just revealed to us that you're the Messiah. Now you're talking about going to Jerusalem and suffering at the hands of the elders. Not even the Romans, but at at the hands of our own people. You say you're going to suffer and you're going to be killed. And of of course, 
it would seem that in his mind, he just bleeped right over the raised on the third day part. No way this is going to happen to you. And he began to rebuke him. And of course, then Jesus turns it around with a severe rebuke. And he turns and he says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. The rest of it's pretty strong too, but especially that first part. Get behind me, Satan. Why does he call him Satan? And he always says, is he calling him Satan? Or is he somehow speaking through Peter or into Peter and the spirit behind what he's, whatever, I don't know. He says, get behind me, Satan. Why would he say that? Well, Jesus, being the master understander of everything, understood this for sure. Someone trying to rebuke Jesus over the notion that he was going to die and be raised on the third day, someone trying to interfere with that, someone trying to get in the way with that, who is being served by that? Satan, right? And so Jesus recognizes the power behind what Peter is saying and says, get out of here, Satan. Get out of here. Because, now look, what can we learn from this? Well, it says that Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Pretty astonishing statement, thinking of anybody rebuking Jesus. Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. Get behind me, Satan. You're an offense to me. Ready? Because you're not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. Here's the problem. You ready? Here's something you can all relate to. Listen carefully to this, and I can relate to it too. When our ideas... Notions, intentions, desires, ambitions, feelings, goals. Our own self-declared sense of what is proper and right from within ourselves. When our own ideas, notions, intentions, desires, and ambitions are out of sync with God's, we get into trouble. That's what was going on with Peter. Peter from within himself meant well. But what Peter was saying when he was rebuking Jesus, this isn't going to happen with you, that was outside of God's plan for what was supposed to happen. And so he got that verbal slap on the wrist. Get behind me, Satan. You're not mindful of the things of God but of the things of men. What does that mean, you're not mindful? I don't think the idea of mindful there is strictly speaking of thinking or cognition or awareness of fact. It's deeper than that. When he says you're not mindful, what he's talking about are Peter's intentions and what Peter really cared about. Peter had a spirit inside him that in a purely isolated way was seemingly good. He had tremendous loyalty to Jesus, right? But this, what was lacking in Peter was in his intentions and in his spirit, a desire to simply fulfill God's plan for all of this. He was mindful not of the things of God, 
but he was mindful of the things of men. There is no way that is happening to Jesus. He's going to be betrayed to the elders, and he's going to suffer, and he's going to die. I'm telling you, there is no way I am allowing that to happen. Jesus, this is not, far be it from you. That is not going to happen to you. That had nothing to do, as admirable as it sounds, had nothing to do with God's plan. And Jesus, of course, immediately recognized it. Brothers and sisters, it is very important that your own ideas, intentions, notions, desires, ambitions, whatever, be subjugated fully to your understanding of God's word and God's plans and God's will. It is not about us. It is about God. It is not about you getting your way. It is about God. It is not about the church being this or the church doing that or me doing this or them doing that or not doing this or not doing that. It is about God's will as revealed in his word being fulfilled in the life of his church. Amen, somebody? Uh, Listen, it's not a rah-rah kind of line. I understand that. But you've got to be able to say amen to that or you don't understand the church. The church is not, the church is not the social playground of humans. The church is the living, manifest body of Jesus Christ in the world. And when, the, and, when, and when the world sees the church, they need to see its head. They need to see its Lord in the functions, in the words, in the relationships, in the spirit, in the activities, in, the, in just the general way that people treat and react to one another. What drive, listen, in the ideas, intentions, notions, desires, and ambitions of the people, they need to see God. Because it is his. When Jesus taught us to pray, when Jesus taught us to pray, the first three things he said were all about God. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your, your, your And then when the prayer turned about myself, it was just daily provision. Give daily provision today, not even beyond today. Give us this day, this day, our daily bread. Forgiveness for our sins, because we're all sinners. Attached to that was the forgiveness of others, because we have no business expecting forgiveness if we're unforgiving, right? And then a cry to be preserved from all the schemes of the evil one. Lead me not into temptation. And then it ended with what? An affirmation of the kingdom is yours. All the power is yours. And all the glory is yours. Where human beings get into trouble is because we make the kingdom what we want it to be or we think it should be. We think we have power to exercise in it. And we somehow think we are entitled to bits and measures of glory. When the kingdom is Christ's and all the power is Christ's and all the glory is Christ's and we are taught to pray that affirmation. Peter forgot in the wake 
of his confession that this all belonged to the man that he was rebuking. He was, st- he was standing there looking him right in the face with all of his best intentions. I don't know if he was pointing or not, but a little flair for the dramatic if you'll tolerate it. But he's standing right there and he's talking to the one who everything belongs, who just said, I must go to Jerusalem and suffer and die. Be killed. Be killed. And on the third day, rise again. No. No. As noble and as well as intended as it was, he was serving Satan. His problem was he was mindful of the things of men and not mindful of the things of God. Can you and I learn anything from that? When our ideas, notions, intentions, desires, ambitions are out of sync with God's, we get into trouble. Ready? Real quick. The what, who, where, when, why, and how of the mind, the Christian mind. The what we've already discussed. What is the Christian mind being described here? It is the intentions, the ambitions in us. Who? Who's important in this? Not me. It's not about me. You know who's important in this? God. Who's important? The Holy Spirit. Don't turn there for time's sake, but you can look it up later in John 14, 23. I've quoted it many times lately. Jesus said, oh, I've got to read it to you. Not in that much of a rush. You can turn if you want, but I'm just, I'm just going to go there real quick and I'm going to read it. So you can just hang and listen if you want. John 14, 23, Jesus said, If anyone loves me, he'll keep my word and my Father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Wow. You know what he was talking about? A couple verses later, he says, These things I have spoken to you while being present with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. That's who's important. The who, what, where, why, and how of the, the, the what, who, where, when, why, and how of the Christian mind. The who is the Holy Spirit. We need to walk in the Spirit and be filled in the Spirit, filled with the Spirit and not walking in the flesh. How are you filled with the Spirit then? Listen, pray. You need to be persistent. You need to make yourself a nuisance in prayer. That's the lesson of Luke chapter 18. Pray. You need to be filling your mind with God's Word. You need to be coming to church and studying with us and listening. You need to be coming to Bible studies. You need to be coming to fellowships of men and women and youth and kids. And as much as you can, coming and studying and listening. You need to be reading the Bible. You need to be reading books that are good, solid commentaries on the Bible. So you get to know God's Word. You need to be praying and asking God to fill you with His Spirit. God's the filler. He's, he's the filling and He's the filler. Really, I mean, that's the truth, right? You should be praying that fill me with your spirit. At one point, Jesus said, you know, 
which one of you would, and he was speaking of the Holy Spirit when he said this, which one of you, if your son asks you for a fish, will give him a scorpion, or he asks for an egg, and you'll give him a stone? If you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your own children, how much more will my Father give the Holy Spirit to those who, what? Ask. Ask him and receive his Spirit. You receive his Spirit when you believe, and you are sealed with his Spirit when you believe. It's not the receiving of it. It's the ongoing day-by-day filling with His Spirit that every Christian must have. Where? That's the what and the who. What's the where of the Christian mind? You know where? In you. That's what He's interested in, the inner man. Let me read to you Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 16. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 16. Listen to this. It says, well, starting in verse 14, it says, For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width, this is the mind of the Christian, that you may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That's, that's where God wants to meet you. That song we sang, in the secret in the quiet place, you're there, right? I want to know you. I want to hear your voice. I want to know you more. I want to touch you. I want to see your face. Those are all biblical allusions to things, right? I want to know you. I want to hear your voice. I want to touch you. I think of like Mary Magdalene wanting to hold on to him after the resurrection and Jesus saying, don't, don't cling to me yet because I have to ascend to my father. I want to see your face. I think of Moses. I want to see your face, Right? But that should be the desire of us, to be filled with the Spirit. Where does God want to meet you? In here. In here. Right? When. The when is very interesting. The when on the field of the Christian mind. We're actually given a when in this passage, right? When did this, when did this Peter getting a little out of sync with God's plans for everything happen? It happened right in the wake of a great victory, right? That's what you need to understand. Right in the wake of realizing who Jesus was and being commended by him and being blessed by him, instantly there is the influence of Satan. And we need to be wary and clearly understand the fact that the devil walks around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, right? So we should always, always, always be ready, always watching, always praying, always alert that our minds do not fall out of sync with God's plans. Why? Why is this so important? Because it has such an effect on your faith. And your faith is the most precious thing you've got. 
Our faith is all we've got. Listen, the right, look at, look at Peter's faith. You remember Peter? Peter was the one when Jesus uh, was walking on the water. Peter was the one who said, let me walk out to you, right? And Peter got out of the boat and he started walking on the water. He did, he started. But then he started to doubt and he started to, drown. Lord, I'm drowning in the Lord. Oh, you have little faith, right? You know? So, 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 so Peter becomes even an example of that. Why is the right mindset? Why is the right intentions and values and desires and ambitions that are consistent with God's, why are they so important? Because that is a direct relation to your faith. And your faith is the most important thing you've got. Your faith is the basis of your relationship with God. Your faith is at the root of your eternal future with God. And we want nothing to undermine your faith. And then lastly, how? How does one stay in a right mind before God? How can one prevent falling to where Peter had fallen here? From, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God, to, I don't care what you say, Jesus, far be it from you. This is not going to happen to you. How does he go from here to here? Well, we described that, but how do you avoid it? We already talked about it. Prayer, God's word, avoiding distractions where possible. Listen, don't let yourself, don't let your own mind be so idle. Don't let your life be so idle that you just sit around thinking and, and, and you get yourself all like, like, like wrapped up with all sorts of anxieties and everything else where it's like you, you can really very easily get apart from reality and you start to like make more of your own opinion than you do of like what God's truth and what reality is. And that's kind of what happened to Peter. You know, he, Jesus is standing right there, right in front of him. And he says, I, I'm going I'm to suffer, I'm going to die, I'm going to rise again on the third day. Not going to happen to you. No, we don't want to get away from that. Where we want to be is, yes, this is what the Lord says, and it's true, and I believe it, and that's it. Right? You need to humbly recognize that it's not the right attitude, the right ambitions, the right desires do not just naturally come from within us. They come from God, of whom the Bible says, He wills and works in you to do for His own good pleasure. Right? I probably didn't quote that exactly right, but you can look up Philippians chapter 2 and verse 13. Who he works in you to will and to do for his own good pleasure. It is God who works in us. And so what is our responsibility? To stay close to him, then we don't fall to where Peter fell. That's all I have for today. I want to thank you for being here and listening. Uh, Hopefully, not only did you get some understanding of the biblical narrative, but you also got some practical instruction for what you can do in your own relationship with God. Listen, 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 listen. Perhaps the most important thing, though, is this. Are you in Christ? If you're not in Christ, when we're done, come and talk to me. I would love to show you more of what the Bible says about how a person can be in Christ. It's faith, really, is all it is, if you want to know the truth. He did all the work. There's no religious ritual. There's no uh, uh, whitewashing or polishing up of your life that's required. He did all the work for you. He fully 
went through suffering and fully paid the price for your sins. He calls you to faith in him. And if you come to put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, maybe you need a little guidance to do that, but really, it's between you and the Lord. If you put your faith in your... And I'm happy to give you that guidance. But listen, call upon his name. Cry out to him and receive his salvation. Jed and Amy, would you come back up here and lead us in our final hymn, please?